Good morning and welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. On today's show, slavery and the legacy of slavery are much discussed these days. Native American slavery, however, is often glossed over. Why? How extensive was it? And who were the enslavers? And who exactly were the enslaved? We'll ask Dr. Esteban Royal Galvez, who is New Mexico's official state historian for eight years and now heads a groundbreaking project focused on indigenous slavery in the Southwest. Dr. Esteban Royal Galvez, welcome to the program. I'm delighted to be with you today, Stephen. Before we get right to the questions raised at the top of the show, I'm curious about what seems to be a special interest of yours in Native American slavery. Your PhD thesis was on this. I've seen many articles by you about it. And now you've arranged for this $1.5 million in funding from the Mellon Foundation to further document it. What draws you to this area? It is, and thank you so much for that question. I mean, we're we're drawn to tell stories for all kinds of reasons. And for me, even though I've made this a professional project, an interest of mine that has carried on for decades, I could trace it back all the way to when I was a kid growing up in northern Taos County in the communities of Cuesta and Costilla listening to grandmothers and aunts tell a story. I remember we would visit my grandma Nea in Pueblo, Colorado, my dad's grandmother, and she told the same story every time we visited her. And I, 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 it's like those stories were ingrained in her and she passed them on to me. This was my great-grandmother. And she told the story of La India Panana, as she would refer to her who I would come to learn was a Pawnee woman, a Pawnee woman who had been captured and eventually ended up as an ancestor of mine living in Arroyondo, the village of Arroyondo, north of Taos. Another ancestor of mine was captured, a Diné, a Navajo woman, brought into a, a family in Abiquiu, and I descend from her as well. So those, my ancestors. When you say captured, do you mean captured and, and made a slave? Yes, they were made slaves. And what do you mean by made? A, what does slavery mean? Is there some accepted definition that you're using? Well, what's interesting, Stephen, is slavery in the Americas, it, it began in 1495 when Columbus sent four sailing ships back to Spain and aboard those ships were 550 indigenous men and women, but it was made illegal in 1542. And yet it continued to happen. That is to say the Native American peoples were captured. They were brought into communities. They were baptized and they were made subservient within these communities. That is what happened to this Pawnee woman and to this uh, Navajo woman. So they were captured. And in their case, they lived the rest of their lives as enslaved people within those communities. But then they eventually married. They had children. And that's why many of us descend from these individuals. You're descended from at least two Native American slaves. You yourself. Yes. And I argue that this is not rare in New Mexico. Every 
community that can trace their generations back more than four or five generations in New Mexico is connected to this. We descend from both the enslaver and the enslaved. But, you know, I wanted to go back to that moment when I was hearing these stories and I was about 10 years old and I'm giving away my age in 1979. I was also watching Alex Haley's uh, Roots and that series on television changed how Americans think about race, about ancestry, about history, and certainly about slavery. Who tells those stories? What those stories are all about? The complicated nature in which they took place? So I was being deeply impacted by these stories told by my grandmothers, but also watching this television series that eventually launched in my mind the importance of the recovering the story of Native American slavery in the Americas. So you're saying that, that those two things contributed to your sort of lifelong interest in the subject? Absolutely. So it's, it's both a personal and a professional interest. Right. And, and once I made it a professional interest, I should say, I have identified at least 10 other individuals who were enslaved from whom I descend as well, including a woman who is known as Doña Inez, who was taken from the Galisteo Pueblos, that Galisteo area, a Pueblo that would be named San Cristobal. She was taken in 1591 by a slaver, taken into Mexico City, and she returned as part of the conquest with Juan de Oñate in 1598. So, yes, I just, it's both a personal and a professional story for me. So that really makes me wonder, if you, you are descended from 12 Native American slaves, how extensive Native American slavery was. And, ju and just looking at sort of the post-Columbus period, post-1492, uh, do we have any sense of how extensive it was? Yeah, I'm talking about in America. Sure. It's a really great question, and it's at the heart of what Native Bound, Unbound, the project that has just been supported by the Mellon Foundation, is going to explore. It's been estimated by other slavery scholars that that number is anywhere between 2.5 and 5 million people who experienced slavery, Native American slavery in the Americas from Argentina all the way up into Canada. But I, in starting to explore and pull these records from various places, whether it's Brazil, California, Virginia, I, I believe we're going to double that number. I don't know, but that's what we're going to start to see in the project. Well, if that's true, you're, you're talking about numbers, uh, really the same order of magnitude as African-American slavery. Yeah, it, Stephen, it, it's really a great question about numbers, but in a way, this is not about numbers, and it's not really about competition in any way. I mean, so I think back to the article that was written in January for the New York Times by Mel Bowie, who asked us to think about these things in a very sensitive way responding to the question of numbers, it will require a practical approach for us to start to examine the individual lives and the arc of their lives, but it also a very sensitive one. This endeavor 
must be undertaken carefully with a deep respect for the people who experienced the traumas of slavery. But, but this is, you know, for me, we're going to actually get a sense numerically of people across the Americas, whether in New Mexico or in Brazil or wherever. But what the aim of the project is to really recover as much as possible the experience that they went through. Well, if you've just tuned in, this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz, and I'm very pleased to be talking today with Esteban Royal Galvez. And Esteban is a scholar of Native American slavery. He did his PhD on that, among other things. And as he just mentioned, he's gotten this $1.5 million Mellon Award to study it further. And just one sort of further basic questions along the lines that you were just discussing. I'm wondering, like, who were the enslavers and who were the enslaves exactly? Do we know, what do we know about that? Sure. Great question. In terms of the enslavers, well, certainly the Native American slavery predated the arrival of Europeans in the Americas. We, Maya and Aztec were taking captives. The Iroquois took captives. After 1492, with the arrival of Columbus, all European empires engaged in the practice. English did it, Dutch did it, French did it, Portuguese and Spanish. But given the Spanish control of, of such a densely populated region of the Americas and its lack, that is Spain's access to the African colonies, Spain emerged as one of the greatest enslavers of indigenous people of the Americas. So one thing that really confuses me about that, Spain made slavery unlawful in 1542. So how could it be that it was made unlawful and yet there were millions of enslaved indigenous Americans? I mean, that's hard to reconcile. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really great question. You're absolutely right. Slavery was officially abolished in 1542 under the what's called the New Laws. In both theory and practice, it should have been the end of indigenous slavery, but instead it was obfuscated and maintained as what I call a tolerated illegality. <laughs> That's a great phrase. <laughs> yeah, well, it's actually, I should say it's not mine. It's Michel Foucault, you know, thinking about that. But it, it was tolerated and it was illegal. But all kinds of other forms were implemented. Several systemic institutions were implemented early on in the conquest that justified and governed the enslavement of, of people in America. One of the main ones what was called the just war theory. At the core, this was not only about how to wage war, but how in the end, according to that theory, the vanquished and their property are at the mercy of the conqueror. This theory would carry into debates taking place hundreds of years later, and particularly how it represented indigenous people as the enemy. If you could call them enemy, you could then capture them and bring them in, take them in in conflict and, and justify it, and then not call it slavery. It's, it's really interesting, Stephen, looking at the records, whether we're looking at baptismal records or civil records, land records, it's rare, at least in New Mexico, to see the word esclavo, slave, 
Instead, what developed was a whole vocabulary so as to obscure this, what I call euphemisms for the enslaved. Terms like criado, which referenced in some way that they were being reared in the family, but it literally came to mean servant. The term serviente, whole classes of people in New Mexico and, and in northern Mexico would develop. Here we use the term genisaro, whole class of people were developed out of this slave trade. And then the caste system sort of reflected that as well. You have, after the initial enslaved people were captured, you had mestizos, you had coyotes, all of these other caste-based terms that were developed to accentuate the fact that people in previous generations had been enslaved. So you, you've mentioned New Mexico, and I, I, I want to just maybe highlight that for a second, because I really wonder how prevalent a Native American slavery was in New Mexico. And actually, I think I read in a piece of yours, something you wrote, that in the 1867-1868 New Mexico Territorial Legislature, there were 36 legislators, and half of them, about half of them, had Native American slaves. And you know, so this is post-Civil War, post-the 13th Amendment, post a bunch of U.S. statutes that says slavery was unlawful. And yet, these public officials in New Mexico, prominent people, had Native American slaves. I found that astounding, actually. Yes, it is. In fact, the article that you're referring to was something I wrote on Medium. And it was in that very narrow time period that I was focused on that. But the database that I've developed for New Mexico there is not a single territorial legislature in which many of its members, not all, but many of its members had enslaved people in their household. And you're absolutely right, post-1867. And several of those enslaved people were held as late as the 1930s, 40s, when they were dying off. Wait, that's that's post, that's after New Mexico becomes a state and part of the U.S.? That's way post. And people were still holding Native American slaves? They were, it had been rescripted in many ways. They were simply being called servants. And you can look at an 1860, 1870, all the way into the 1930s, and you can find those same people who were captured and baptized as slaves in the 1850s and 60s still being held in the household. So absolutely, that's what the records are bearing now. So I know you're going to be looking at the South, your project, which I want to talk about a little more specifically in a second, but you're going to be looking at the Southwest generally, but how prevalent was Native American slavery in New Mexico, in the New Mexico area, as compared with other parts of the Southwest? Was it more or less? Do we have any idea? Well, given the age of New Mexico versus Texas and California that were settled later, Native American slavery was foundational in terms of the settlement of the Spanish from the very beginning, from the 1530s, all the way, all the way to the period that I was talking about just more recently in the 19th century. I'm less familiar with the practice in California, though know it, and in Texas, but certainly, given the settlement patterns and the age of New Mexico, it was much more prevalent. 
And as you start to explore into northern Mexico and places like Zacatecas, Paral, Chihuahua, given the mining industry of northern Mexico, it also was very, very prevalent. I think one of the things I read, and I, I no longer remember if it's something you wrote or something someone else wrote, but Native American men, were they were used as hard labor in, in mining, but women and young children were more prevalent as captured Native American slaves. They, and, and they were chosen for these awful reasons about how they looked. Uh, it's frightening reasons. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's true that unlike what we see in the American South and in maybe other slave systems as well, it's certainly in New Mexico. We'll start to see if the same is true in places like Colombia and in Toronto, but but certainly in New Mexico, it is much more prevalent to have young children and young female children. As slaves, they were captured, they were preferred. Yeah, easier to capture them, easier to hold them. Wow. And so that's part of it. It's it's much more complex than how they looked, right? Part of it was easier to capture, easier to hold, but also in places like New Mexico, it was generally... a a domestic sphere, right? there. Certainly there were young captive Navajos or Apaches or Comanches who were made into young sheep herders who were taking care of the flocks, who were doing that type of work. But they were also, the young female captives were cleaning the houses, mudding the, the walls, building the churches. That's what this system looked like in New Mexico. Well, if you've just tuned in, this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. And we're speaking today with Estevan Royal Galvez. And Estevan was the New Mexico historian, official historian for eight years. He also has spent a lifetime, really, as a scholar looking into Native American slavery. And he has been awarded, and congratulations on this, Estevan, a $1.5 million award from the Mellon Foundation to further document and study Native American slavery. And we've touched on on this project, but I'd like to get a little more specific on it. I understand it's going to be a digital archive, but what does that mean exactly? What What's going to be on there? And, and what do you hope to show people? What, what will people learn from looking at it? Thank you for the question. I, I'm so honored that the Mellon Foundation has chosen this as one of their grants for three years. It's a $1.5 million, though I'm already in fundraising mode, given <laughs> the vision and scope I have for this project. Yeah, I was wondering about that, how far it would take you. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, I, I even before I was told of the award, I was already fundraising because this project deserves that, right? I mean, it is hemispheric in scope and vision. We endeavor to account for every single individual who was captured and in some way experienced slavery across the Americas. We'll be looking from Toronto to Argentina, from California to Florida. So it's hemispheric. There were Native people from Mexico and beyond who were taken into places like Spain and London and Italy. But there were people here, Apaches who were captured and, 
and lived their entire life in Santa Fe, in Zacatecas, in different places. So that is what we're creating with this project, Stephen, a back-end database where we're going to be incorporating names, dates, places, and, and documents. It's going to be the first ever collection of its type. So how do you do this with stuff that, I mean, some of the, this information is 300 years old. And as we said, uh, it was supposedly unlawful for most of this time. So isn't it going to be hard to document? Isn't it going to be hard to find out? You know, the Spanish in particular were pretty good at documenting this. And, and when we find terms like criado, sirviente, genizaro, any of these terms are flags for us that really reveal the experience automatically. So I've already begun to assemble a research team. We'll expand it as the project expands over the years, but I've started to develop a really top-notch research team who is going to be pouring through sacramental records, civil records, land records. We're going to be looking at last wills and testaments. We're going to be digitizing those. A lot of these records have already been digitized. And thanks to the work of genealogists and genealogical societies, they've already extracted a lot of these records. We're just assembling them around this focus of Native American slavery. I see. And so, yeah, so we're, in some cases, they've been digitized. Where that hasn't been done, we're digitizing them. We're taking those documents. We're transcribing them. We're translating them. And we're going to gather the metadata around them. That is to say, the names, the dates, the places. And that's how we're going to be pulling this together. That's the back end, Stephen. In the future, I don't know, maybe two years from now, a year and a half, hopefully, we're going to have a public-facing website where all of this data and information and digital assets like documents will be made available to the public to actually do searches We'll assemble the, the data into online exhibits, virtual timelines, and we're going to showcase what I call the geography of slavery, showing, I believe, that there's not a single community throughout the Americas that was not in some way impacted by Native American slavery. And by impacted, you mean were enslaved? that people who were enslaved, people were enslavers that were holding them, were going to actually be able to document that and show that, yes, people that were enslaved. So one, one thing I'm interested in is, you know, like, what was it actually like to be a Native American slave? And in, in preparation for this show, I, I read an amazing autobiography called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And it's this story of Harriet Jacobs, who escapes from slavery, uh, African-American slavery, in 1842. And, you know, she spends her whole life in fear of sexual assault, although she's never sexually assaulted, of corporal punishment, although she, she doesn't recount any, like, particular corporal punishment, and maybe most fearful of having her children taken and sold. Her whole life revolves around these fears, and I'm wondering how comparable that is to, say, Native American slavery, or if you have a story you can tell us that would elucidate or tell us more or help us understand what, what Native American slavery was actually like. Stephen, I love this question because it's at the heart of 
what my work has been about for decades, but it's also at the heart of what Native Bound Unbound, the, the Mellon funded project is going to be about really trying to understand the arc of the individual lives and what that experience was like. I think of, I mean, there's so many names that come to mind. Someone who I've written about in the past, she was a captured Navajo woman. She was already, she had her own children. She was living with her family somewhere in Dinetan, the Navajo nation and the Navajo homeland when she was captured. She was holding her own infant child. She, in a very rare instance, she remembered her name. She was an adult. She wasn't a younger girl. She was already an adult. She remembered her name long after she had been captured as Atat Ba'atsoni. And she was taken into Taos and sold. And she was bought by the famous Padre Antonio Jose Martinez. So like, like a slave market. Exactly like a yeah. slave. It was a slave market. Exactly like a slave market. Okay. There were slave markets in Taos. There were slave markets in Abiquiut and many other places. And so in this case, she was taken to Taos. She was placed on, into that market. The very famous priest made famous by Willa Cather and death comes for the archbishop, but he was also famous. He brought the first printing press to New Mexico. He served in the territorial legislature and he purchased this woman, baptized her. She became known as Rosario Romero. And that's typical, right, Esteban? The, the captured slaves and their children would be baptized. Yep. She and her ch children were yeah. baptized. Yeah. They were all baptized in the Catholic faith. And yeah. she was separated from her family and became part of this family, had her own family, would live most of her life in Taos and in Ocate. She had three sons and, and a daughter, and I've interviewed and been in touch with those descendants of this woman. But, you know, in terms of your reflections, what you had read before, you know, what we know about Rosario was she lived with that same terror, that same fear. She was separated from her daughter when she was captured. They were sold into separate households. Oh, my God. She lost that yeah. child, right? So could you imagine that? what that would have felt like to have been taken away from your own family, from your whole world that you knew, the mountains, the places that you knew, separated from your ancestry, brought into a place that was not yours, a, a different language, and made to be a subservient class, right? Serving, hauling the wood, hauling the waters, hewing the wood, and just mudding the house, made to be a servant and all of what that stigma felt like. And then she ran away three times. I mean, so that tells us about what she was experiencing a little bit. We don't know if she was whipped in any way, but certainly that's, she ran away from that experience at least three times, eventually settled into it as far as we know. So you've described your, your, that you, you yourself have so many descendants and you describe all these other people that you've, uh, who are descendants of Native American slaves. What do you see as the legacy of that? How do you see that as affecting, say, life today of people? You know, I believe that, you know, once we know our history, we can begin to at least understand more about 
who we are and why that matters. It, it, you know, I think of Ralph Emerson, we have to trace the jagged edges in order to transcend it. And that's what I believe this recovery project is all about, understanding a little bit about who we are, not just the trauma, right, about these experiences, but the resilience of these individuals, the people who actually became our ancestors and how that defines so much about our ability to be resilient. We are going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank today's guest, Dr. Esteban Royal Galvez. Thanks also to my producers, Eli Henley, Roman Garcia, and Tristan Klump. The executive producer of this show is Lynn Shebecki, and my name is Stephen Spitz. Podcasts of this show are available wherever you get podcasts. Archives of past shows are at stephenspitz.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.